Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. You know, it's really interesting how things that happen in faraway places somehow affect Israel and the Jews. Right now, there is a lot of tension on the border between um, Ukraine and the Soviet Union. And our foreign minister decided to move the Israeli embassy in Kiev to Lvov in case the Russians invade Ukraine. Lvov is farther west and therefore a greater distance than the border on which the Russians have amassed an estimated 160,000 troops. Now, Israel began providing consular services in Lvov last Thursday, and the rest of the operations will move there in the coming days. The foreign ministry is prepared for all the developments, including the possibility of a land evacuation, including bringing Jews here to Israel. According to the ministry, in that framework, Israel, Israeli diplomats serving in Poland, Slovakia, Romania, Moldavia, Moldavia and Hungary visited border crossings with Ukraine and held meetings with the border authorities to ensure passage for Israeli citizens who may seek to leave Ukraine. So not only are there Jews now coming to Israel from Ukraine, Ukrainian Jews, but there are a large number of Israelis in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, I was surprised when I saw the uh, numbers Despite the efforts and the government's entreaties over the past week, there are 12,000 Israelis in uh, Ukraine, and only about 4,000 have left the Ukraine as of t- uh, yesterday. So it's, it's a tough situation, but it also affects the Jews, and Israel has to do what it can do to help Israelis and Jews. I'll be back after the break. Hello, I am Walter Bingham. If you want to hear the news behind the news and the true perspective on world affairs, then The Walter Bingham File is the program for you. We bring you interviews with the movers and shakers, political commentaries, and on-the-spot reports of events as they happen. All here every Tuesday, 4 p.m. Israel Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. And it's all archived on our website. Make it a date. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. Hi, 
Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to do this section of the program not as one topic, but a number of small topics, which I think should be of interest to the listeners. The first item is really the shortest, but I think it is the most significant, and that is the following. The Judicial Selection Committee here in Israel appointed four new justices to the Supreme Court last week. The four are um, include the following two, which I think are of interest. One is uh, Kaboob, Judge Khalid Kaboob. Judge Kaboob is the first Arab Muslim appointed to the Supreme Court. The other one of interest is a justice named Kanfe Steinitz, a woman. She's the first female judge of Sephardi descent. Both Kanfe Steinitz and 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 uh, several others among the four are viewed as moderate conservatives. What's interesting is Kabu will be the first permanent Muslim Arab Israeli justice on the Supreme Court. There have been prior Arab Israeli justices, but they were always Christians. Most of the negotiations over the candidates revolved around right-wing versus left-wing issues, nothing having to do with their religion nor their sex. They One is a private sector appointment, an Arab-Israeli appointment, equal opportunity for women. Uh, the new ju- Supreme Court Justice Kabubin, uh, by the way, just for, for interest, has spent most of his career handling economic crime issues and has been less well known as a constitutional lawyer. But the bottom line is you have the first Sephardi woman and the first Muslim Arab Israeli. And I think that's good news for the state of Israel, and it's something that people should know about. The next item, totally not related to the previous one, and the uh, listeners can uh, uh, draw their own conclusions from it. It's something that was said by the new ambassador of the United States to Israel. His name is Thomas Nides, N-I-D-E-S. U.S. Ambassador Tom Nides said he would meet with settlers but would not visit West Bank settlements because it is symbolically harmful. He told a Jerusalem meeting of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations that is not right for me today to go in my motorcade and hang out in a settlement. He explained that he intended to visit all of Israel, but when asked about the settlements, he confirmed he had no plans to visit them. He said, and I quote, I'm trying not to do things that aggravate people. I will meet with anyone who wants to meet with me, any settler who lives in the settlement and wants to come with, to meet with me, 
Come meet with me. I will meet with anyone who has a view about the settlements. I will meet with anyone who is right, left, I don't care. But when it comes to the settlements, he said, I'm trying not to do symbolic things that just make things worse. By the way, historically, U.S. ambassadors to Israel have not crossed the pre-1967 lines as part of their formal duties and did not visit the settlements. Former President Donald Trump changed that policy. Uh, he had an ambassador, David Friedman. Trump's appointee was the first official in his post to formally visit Jerusalem's western wall, which, by the way, in case listeners were not aware, is across the Green Line. Um, along the, uh, the western wall, along with the Temple Mount, is Judaism's holiest site. Now, this new American ambassador, Knights, has reverted back to the prior policy with one exception. Like Friedman, he too has visited the Western Wall, which is an area captured by Israel in the Six-Day War. Uh, as a matter of fact, this new ambassador, Nides, noted that he's gone to the Western Wall scores of times since arriving in Israel last year and has visited with Rabbi Shmuel Rabinovitz, who heads the Western Wall Heritage Foundation. He said, and I quote, I have gone to the wall, the Kotel, four dozen times. I have a friend who is very sick with cancer. I go every day. I pray at the wall. I don't make a big fuss of it. I put a note in the wall and I leave. He went on to say, and I quote, the American people uh, want to make sure that I do not do stupid things. A one-state solution is not a solution. It's not good for Israel, it's not good for the Jews, it's not good for anyone. It's important for us to keep our eye on the prize, which is a strong democratic Jewish state, unquote. So according to Nides, he won't visit the, uh, the area taken over in 1967, but he has visited the wall uh, dozens of times, according to him, which is quite interesting. I myself have not visited the wall dozens of times, particularly and since the coronavirus, but it's nice to know the American ambassador has been there many times. The next item, totally different, but I think the uh, listeners should find it of interest. Uh, there is a 25% salary gap between people in Asia who speak English and those who don't. So improving English skills is of the highest importance. In Korea, however, efforts to teach English as a foreign language have yielded what are considered inadequate results. The Korea's uh, Charter for Education is based on digital technologies and what's called cognitive science theories. So what's happened is a company here in Israel called MagnaLearn, which is an Israeli startup, 
has signed a distribution agreement with Belt English, a leading Korean education partner. So MagnaLearn's technology will be offered in Korean schools this coming year and will allow them to facilitate personalized data-driven online studies of English. And there is a, apparently an international standard for language capabilities. It's a whole uh, area that I'm not familiar with. It's, it has been to do with teaching English all around, or around the world. Now, this company called MagnaLearn was formed in the groundbreaking work of scientists at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in what's called natural language processing, cognitive science, and education. So in their desire to improve the English, English is now the international language. Now, years ago, when I was young, the international language was French, but English has overtaken French as the international language, and these companies in Israel are helping companies in Asia, children in Asia, to learn the English language. And apparently, this Israeli firm, MagnaLearn, which is a leader in the field, has now signed a contract with Korea. And that's good news for Israel and for Israel business. The next item on a different uh, topic, but again, it has to do with Israeli technologies, really groundbreaking technologies, is the um, an Israeli company uh, received $29 million in seed funding. Uh, they do three-dimensional underground imaging. This company called Exodigo, has announced the commercial availability of its flagship product, which is a non-intrusive subterranean mapping platform for construction. It can be used for mining and utility companies uh, in the United States and Israel. It, is, it has a cart-borne or drone-borne technology, and it's used to create geolocated geo digital maps of subterranean areas without turning any soil. And it could turn over a new leaf for the construction and excavation industries by offering an alternative to expensive accident-prone digs According to the company's estimates, over $100 billion is spent on excavation and drilling to discover what lies underground in an attempt to avoid hitting gas pipelines or water sources or oil or other potential hazards hidden beneath the surface. So, according to this company, it's time to finally break ground, which is a great term, on the use of this kind of technology, another Israeli innovation. I'll be back after the break. Hi, 
everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show. Pull up a chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The words social justice sounds very nice. However, that word is being misused and the tool has become a tool of anti-Semitism. Examples of anti-Semitism in movements termed as social justice movements, they're all over the place. The organization called Camera has documented the links between the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement, called BLM, and the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement, called BDS. A recent study was done of college and university BDS staffers by the Heritage Foundation, and it found many such individuals engage in extreme hyperbolic and obsessive criticism of Israel on social media to a point where the Heritage Foundation concluded that what they were doing was anti-Semitic. Researchers searched 741 Twitter accounts that they identified from the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement at 65 universities. Of tweets about Israel and the Palestinians, they found that 96% were critical of Israel, including false allegations of apartheid and colonialism. Take an example. Oberlin College as a vanguard of the far left that long ago embraced identity politics and critical social justice. Anti-Semitic anti-Zionism has manifested itself as an exhibit display just before Passover that portrayed the ten plagues as Israeli actions against Palestinians. Professors teaching material in classes that would be considered anti-Semitic under the widely adopted International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition and lauding anti-Semitic speakers of all kinds. Edward Said was a professor at Columbia who did some original work in making anti-Semitism an integral component of social justice. 
that was kind of subtle, but if you read his books and read about him, you see he appears to be searching for social justice, but he hides anti-Semitism under that heading. Edward Said's writing has played a major role in bringing anti-Semitic anti-Zionism into critical social justice. Uh, the um, Several people wrote a book with an interesting name. It's called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. It was written by people named Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, and they demonstrate that critical race theory and the post-colonialism popularized in academia by people like Professor Said have the same ideological ancestor in so-called postmodern theory. In other words, something called moral relativism, an emphasis on identity and language, and distrust of empiricism were common to them. These once arcane theories took root and gained broad support both in and out of academia over a period of several decades, even as it became more intertwined. By the mid-2000s, if you studied one of the key topics of critical social justice, and these include sex, gender identity, race, sexuality, immigration, status, uh, indigeneity, colonial status, disability, religion, and weight, you would find in all these things, which we never heard of, by the way, when I went to school, you, you would factor in all these ideas that include and include anti-Semitism. In other words, all these ideologies that we never heard of 50 years ago are related and married to one another, one another for better or worse. Disagreement is rarely tolerated. The, uh, he wrote a book, uh, Say wrote a book called Orientalism and the Question of Palestine. And in his introduction to the Question of Palestine, he writes that he intends to avoid accounts of political reality, dismisses as historical anything that cannot be made to fit. It's a what he calls a pragmatic ideology, and he pretends to write as a detached observer. In other words, he was telling a story, not recounting history. That's very interesting. What's happened in the last several decades is people tell stories in order to make a point, but they pretend that they're only recounting history. By the way, uh, Said himself was a literature professor, not a historian. So it, it's hard to imagine this storytelling would have gained such traction, but that was very popular. Claiming to write history, individuals actually telling stories to make the point that they want to make. Uh, the... the uh, in, in uh, his book, Orientalism, he compares remarks made by Chaim Weitzman to the uh, anti-Semitic forgery infamously, infamously known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. The 
Saeed, a professor at Columbia, was an early promoter of the idea of destroying the world's only Jewish state in favor of a binational one, although he admitted in a 2000 interview that the fate of the Jews in such state would be uncertain. In other words, Edward Said, a professor of literature, introduced anti-Sionism into higher education. By the way, he told terrible falsehoods about his own life. The um, It's interesting, a guy gets a position as a professor of literature at a at a. Uh, academic institution like uh, Columbia University writes books that contain lies and it's accepted because of his titles. And by the way, he's not the only one. I've only written, spoken about him as an example. The um, all, all these deceptions about Israel follow a similar pattern. They pretend to be academic studies. And these people have influence on critical social justice scholarship and in turn activism, which is undeniable, and anti-Semitic anti-Zionism is part of it. To the, um, it's very important that the Jewish community fight anti-Semitism and also uh, recognize how so-called academic studies are being used uh, as a basis for anti-Semitism, but they sound very kosher because the people who do the writing appear to be objective academic scholars. Uh, and the reason I brought this up is because it's very common now. Uh, it didn't exist uh, when I was younger, probably not until about 25 years ago, where anti-Semitism has taken on a new face. It has taken on the face of academia. So it makes, makes it look very kosher. And uh, that is something that those who fight anti-Semitism have to keep in mind, because it is a new form of warfare against the Jews, and essentially it's it's buttoned up, and it looks kosher, and it looks like it's the result of academic studies, but in a sense, it's the same old anti-Semitism in a new form a form of academia, something that didn't exist years ago. Years ago, uh, anti-Semites were rabble-rousers, and although there were some in Germany in the middle of the 19th century who came up uh, with so-called scientific reasons to hate Jews, that's where the word anti-Semitism came from. But as a general rule, most uh, anti-Semites are rabble-rousers and uh, populists and people of all kinds, not, not academics. But in the last several decades, ac decades, academia has become a source of anti-Semitism also in the guise of academic studies. It's interesting about uh, anti-Semitism. It can take all kind of forms, and indeed it does, in order to keep itself active, one form or another. So I just wanted to touch upon this.
to say how the organization claiming that they're out for social justice, like BLM and and uh, and the others and the BDS, they're just uh, anti-Semites under another guise. I'll be back after the break. Shalom, I'm Leah Haroni. Join me on my show, News from the Torah. Each Sunday, we'll use the weekly Torah portion as a prism for understanding the news today. Listen to News from the Torah to gain clarity about the times we're living in and to understand your own spiritual path in the process. News from the Torah, every Sunday on Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. This, this year is an election year in the United States which means that a lot of American congressmen are going to come to visit Israel in order to help them get the Jewish vote in the United States. A group of uh, Republicans were here, led by um, a leading Republican, Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican senator, and then a group of seven Democratic congressmen came they were led by the House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and these trips are always very quick, they're whirlwind. These special visitors are kept busy with meetings and briefings, and there's some obligatory trips to the Knesset, Yad Vashem, and sometimes they'll stop at a local falafel stand. It's always the same. While one would think that the primary purpose politicians have for visiting Israel would be briefings about security, especially briefings on Iran and other threats in our region, that would only be partially true. These trips are essentially a two-way street. Foreign politicians come to show solidarity with Israel, and since both Republicans and Democrats come, it's bipartisan solidarity. However, they are at the mercy of the Israeli government and what will be on their agenda items. Apparently, the Israeli government decides, of course, with the agreement of these uh, politicians, where they they will go and what they will see. These are all high-profile U.S. politicians, and they're treated to all kinds of briefings that were really arguments by Israel against signing an agreement with Iran. That is the big thing that Israel is trying to impress upon American congressmen do not sign an agreement with Iran. 
Now, it's no secret that Original didn't like the original nuclear deal with Iran, and now they have a new watered-down, weaker version, which is being discussed at a conference in France, and is even more worrisome to Israel and even less popular here in Israel. Now, the Democratic leadership in the American Congress is surely and fully aware that under the Trump administration, together with Netanyahu, both of whom, of course, are no longer on the scene, mainstream Democrats were marginalized. They know that the voices of the so-called squad in the Congress and people in the Senate like uh, Bernie Sanders were grabbing headlines about Israel, all of which were negative. So this group of Democrats came here, and this visit was essential for them. It was a play, an obvious play, for pro-Israel voters in the United States they could only accomplish this by actually visiting Israel. It was a public pronouncement to voters that in the almost imminent upcoming midterm elections, Democrats are not represented by the squad. That is the point they were trying to make. And like in the past, they wanted to show that its support for Israel is by bipartisan, both Republicans and Democrats support Israel. Despite what we hear from the squad, a small group that is very left-wing, support for Israel is still a broad-based policy of the United States for reasons that are, make sense for the United States. Many polls reveal that American voters are almost universally support Israel, and they support Israel significantly more strongly than they support the Palestinians. Uh, last September, when the House voted to uh, re-outfit re Israel with missiles uh, for the Iron Dome anti-missile defense system, it was depleted in the previous conflict with Gaza, Congress voted at a $1 billion deal to support Israel to fill up the anti-missile defense system, and the vote was 220 to 9. Only 2% of the House voted against the deal, which is a real eye-opener. Even the one of the congressmen, Alexandria Arcasio Cortez, known as AOC, she's one of the leaders of the squad and a very vocal critic of Israel, which finds every chance to criticize Israel, did not vote against the deal. What she voted was present. Present means I'm here and I do not vote against the bill. That's not quite a yes, but it's obviously not, certainly not a no. So the takeaway from all this is clear. Democrats and Republicans, thank heaven, support Israel. Uh, and after that vote, as I said, was uh, 220 to 9, uh, the, our Prime Minister Bennett tweeted, 
Thanks to members of the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republican alike, for the overwhelming support for Israel and the commitment to our security. Whoever tries to challenge this security received a convincing answer with this vote. Now, uh, by the way, during this visit, Knesset Speaker Mickey Levy referred to House Speaker Pelosi and said she would be remembered in history for that vote. The vote was proof positive that Israel is more proper than it is often thought to be. Now, the real reason for this trip, led by Pelosi, uh, had more to do with American politics than solidarity with Israel. In absence of a strong, dynamic American president and an even weaker vice president, Nancy Pelosi is filling the gap. She is essentially the face of national U.S. Democratic leadership, and she wants to make sure not to lose the Jewish vote. Pelosi knows that most of of, of the U.S. voters uh, are middle of the road, and support for Israel runs right through that middle. Pelosi does not want to lose the pro-Israel vote to Republicans in November, and she actually said it outright. She said, and I quote, U.S. remains ironclad. I keep using that word in our support of Israel's security and its regional stability. And, again, she said in the Knesset, we are together in the fight against terrorism posed by Iran, both in the region and also its nuclear development. The nuclear threat of Iran is a global one. Israel's proximity to Iran is of concern to all of us, unquote. So essentially, this trip, both by Republicans and by Democrats, and the Democrats, of course, led by the Speaker of the House, it's essentially, it's a voting uh, a trip to get Jewish voters in the United States. She also said something else, which, of course, makes no sense to me. She reconfirmed the commitment of the United States to a two-state solution. She said, and I quote, our delegation is also here to reaffirm America's commitment to a just and enduring two-state solution, one that embraces, enhances stability and security for Israel, Palestinians, and their neighbors, unquote. It's interesting that it's apparently the only ones who are not publicly in favor of a two-state solution are the Palestinians themselves. They like to wipe out Israel, and they're pretty open about it, but the American Americans think that being committed to a two-state solution sounds good. So the U.S. Democratic leadership, I have to assume, was not just in Israel to get publicity to attend briefings. What they were trying to do was attract American voters. They were on a trip to the Jewish state 
to emphasize they want to be move ahead with the two-state solution, and that is essentially what she uh, said. So this is both what the Democrats and Republicans are doing. The U.S. pressures us, pushes uh, the the point was made in the visit here, and it's really interesting that they keep yelling over and over again about the two-state solution, something which everybody seems to be in favor of, except the Palestinians. So again, this is a trip, an election trip for the Democrats. Come here looking for the Jewish uh, vote. It's uh, almost 6,000 miles away from Washington to Tel Aviv, and uh, therefore it's probably the longest election trip taking for the, taking, taken before the upcomer, upcoming November elections. So at least these politicians take it at their own government expense. Thanks again for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.